0: The Living Legends Foundation presents Music Day, a verified hit.
1: Well, today's show, we are continuing the celebration of Quincy Jones turning 90 years young. And we're doing things a little differently again. We are speaking to a man that has known Quincy and worked with him for decades. I'm talking about Ed Eckstein. So... I'm Monique Kelly, and this is Music Day, a verified hit. This is a podcast all about trends and issues facing the Black music business, unapologetic conversations that will inspire and educate people. You can get Music Day anywhere where you get your podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and iHeartRadio. So we're going to just dive in because I'm so excited to have you here today, Ed. You are the son of Billy Eckstein. You toured with your dad as a child during school breaks. wrote for Soul Magazine, joined Quincy's production company at 19 years old, headed Polygram's Wing Records with Miss America Vanessa Williams, became the president of Mercury Records, the first African-American at a non-Black owned label. So my first question for you, Ed, Well, first of all, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here. Thank you. And um, my first question to you is, did your position as head of Mercury rekindle the memory of Quincy Jones as he was the first Black person to head the A&R department of a major non-Black label at Mercury Records? He produced It's My Party by Leslie Gore, and you became the first Black head of that same major label. Uh, Did the two of you ever discuss or reflect on that full circle moment?
0: The The notion wasn't lost on me. I, I was well aware of the fact that he was the first, you know, black vice president of A&R and, and one of the major labels. Because when I worked for him, it was, it was a conversation on a number of occasions where he would reference it to something, tying something in business-wise. And also, my father had recorded for Mercury. Quincy produced and arranged for my dad when he was there. So it was like a full circle moment, you know. My dad having been an artist there, my mentor having been an executive there, and then ultimately, I took over the reins. But, you know, one thing really had nothing to do with the with the other, other than the fact they were serendipitous in that respect.
1: And Ed, tell me a little about, about those early years when you were touring with your dad, first of all, and then joining Quincy's production company. What was that entire experience like from childhood to being 19 years old, joining this production company?
0: Well, my father toured basically 40 weeks a year. Uh, he was on the road a lot. Um, so... Most of the school year, he was he was touring. So in the summers, the family would pack up the station wagon and do a trip across the country, stopping in Chicago to see my mom's family, stopping in Pittsburgh to see dads, ending up up in the Catskills, where Pops would do, you know, four weeks in the Catskills, maybe two more in the Poconos, and then another six weeks of so-called Chitlin Circuit Theaters, you know, the <laughs> Baron, the Howard, the Apollo, et cetera. And that's where he kind of demystified the business for us, because, you know, growing up, most of the kids when I grew up didn't know who my dad was. You know, you'd get that sort of taunting. Your dad's famous, but I don't know who he is. And their parents would make a big deal out of it, you know, because most of the parents grew up on Billy Eckstein records. He was of their generation. So more often than not, there was like, you know, it was a big deal. And one of the things that Pops tried to do for us to make us understand, because, you know, those kind of moments where you play Little League ball or basketball, football, whatever, You say, Dad, I hit a home run today, whatever scored a touchdown. You wish he wasn't there because he was on the road. You wish he was there. And our only times when he was on the road that we could connect was he would check in, you know, once a week. We talked to him on the phone and sort of get the update. Um, And one of the things that he impressed to my brothers and I um, was I'm no different than anybody else. Just my name happens to be in lights. I wish I could be doing what your, your, your friend whose father is a, in the metal business or whatever the case may be, but this is what I do. And the fact mm-hmm. that it's up in lights, you know, people make that more special. So he demystified the business for us by sort of teaching us the game. Um, to that extent, I guess I'm in, in the current uh, nomenclature, I'm a Nepo baby, Nepo baby, um, you know, because in our, in our household, showbiz was family business. You know, we sit around the table, stuff that got talked about was, was show business, you know. If your parents were teachers, they talked about teacher stuff. So, you know, we, one of the things he did to demystify is we all had gigs on the tour during the summer, and it started off with one of, one of the things that the first stage was putting the music on the stands. He taught us that he and his accompanies. He had a guy called Bobby Tucker, who was his piano player for 50 years. And Tuck would teach us where, how to set up the stands, music on the stands. So if you put the third saxophone player's part on the trombone player's stand, in the middle of the song, he turned the page, if the wrong music was there, all hell was going to break loose, and Pop, Pops or talk weren't going to be happy. So we sort of learned you know, learned how to cover things thoroughly. That was, that was the first phase. The second gig was being, uh, he never wore the same thing in the same city twice. So when he'd come off the stage, he'd take his tuxedo or his suit or whatever off, and it would be on the floor, and he pick it up and stuck it in the laundry bag and made sure that it got to the cleaners the next day. So sort of valet-like, if, if you will. And then it's sort of you elevated to Greeter, uh, where you we'd wear our own little tuxedo and suit backstage. And a lot of those gigs, you know, when you come off the stage, at 20 minutes after being off the stage, you'd go back out and sign autographs, take pictures. So, you know, we'd sort of walk back out to where the people were. My dad will be back out here in 20 minutes. So you'd never really have the families, oh, my God, that's your son, you know? So he did that. So we really learned how to, you know, that the fans were our lifeblood, you know, the fans mm-hmm. were the ones who really... Just, you know, the lovely house and the way we were raised and all that kind of stuff that that was afforded us came as a direct result of the people that uh that, you know, that were backstage that were there waiting for you to come out and take pictures. So that's how the business got demystified. So one particular summer nineteen sixty one, 1961, uh, I was to be eight years old that year. So seven during the summer, he was on the road with there was dad, the Quincy Jones Orchestra, um, Nipsey Russell and Red Fox, depending on which, which venue it was in, were the comedians. The Four Tops were his background singers. And Frida Payne was the uh, girl singer with Quincy's Orchestra. And Coleson Atkins, Honey Colson, Char- Charlie Atkins. Charlie Atkins being famous as the Motown choreographer. And Honey being, they were, they were two well, well-renowned tap dancers, were the dance act on the show. So, you know, we, we'd go out and, um, and they, they were doing four or five shows a day in places like the Apollo. And when my dad was a uh, loved to play golf, he played golf constantly he was a scratcher, played pretty much 72 holes of golf, 36 holes of golf every day. And, and most of his life, most of my life, he only worked warm weather climates. Um, so he played 36 holes. But when you're a kid, last thing you want to do is sort of hang out on a golf course because I didn't play golf. Um, so Quincy sort of became big brother slash Uncle Q. Um, when I, was, I saw him out there, as like a seven year old and he's. Quincy's 20 years older than me. So he's 27 years old at that point. And there are summers, you know, some of those gigs pops was, you know, going out and we'd end up either in the hotel, hanging out with mom or Quincy at that point was doing a lot of what they call clinics. He would go to various music stores where they in different cities, whatever company was, was his sponsor for his horn or he would go to clinics for young arrangers and stuff. And, um, my family calls me bugs. That's, we all have family nicknames. And so, you know, one point Tuesday, bugs, you want to come hang out? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I ended up hanging out with him doing that. And, uh, and that started, you know, he became like sister to big brother slash uncle, you know, slash whatever, you know, family. And that translated to years later, I hadn't, you know, so I, I that was, so I said, I'm seven years old, seven, eight, nine years old. Um, and then I wouldn't, you know, Went away to school, blah, 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 and became a teenager. And when I was like 18, I was writing for a magazine out here uh, called Phonograph Record Magazine. And I got a call one day from the head of publicity at a and Records, a sister named Billy Spencer another woman named Dee Dee McNeil, called me and asked me what I would be interested in writing a story about Quincy. He had just completed his album, Body Heat. Uh, and it was going to be a career change and a transition for him musically and where he was going musically. As I came to find out years later, Quincy shed skin every, you know, sort of seven to ten years on a number of levels. Would I be interested in doing this piece with him? I said, Yeah, sure. Let me hear the record. So they sent me the record, and I loved it. Body Heat's a great album, still one of my favorite records. Oh. Um, and they loved the record, and they said, Well, here's his number. Give him a call. See, put together when you guys get there, do the interview. So I called him. Books, how you doing? Yeah. How you been? And, uh, you know, you hadn't seen me since you know I was a little kid. Here I was, 18, 19 years old at that point. And uh, he said, yeah, man, I'd love to talk to you about the record. He said, I'm doing a gig. He was doing, he and his big band at that point, Disneyland, used to do weekend concerts during the summer uh, uh, on the Tomorrowland stage with big bands. Basie did it, Ellington band. And then Quincy had a band. He was doing his big band gig there at Disneyland. And This was was the last phase of him shedding that particular skin. So he said, meet me down in the A&M recording studio a lot. We're going to be, the band bus will be there. We're going down to Disneyland. Meet me there at 6 o'clock on Saturday, whatever. I met in there at six o'clock on Saturday. Of course, me being who I was, a knucklehead at the time, I was a little bit uh, like fifteen minutes late. And When I got there, musicians were all these sort of crusty brothers who had all performed with the Haps Band or Ellington's Band or Basie's Band, all of whom knew my pops from back in the day. And they were all out here at that point because one of the things a lot of folks don't know that most, like the Johnny Carson Orchestra. The Murph Griffin Orchestra, a number of the orchestras in the studios out here, a lot of those great musicians who were in those bands uh, during back in the day ended up in those T V and, and, and studio bands out here. And so just to sort of get their thing off, they would, you know, do do bands, do like the Quincy gig or Summys gig, so they could play on a Saturday night and jam and solo and all that stuff. So I get on the bus, I had you know big crazy ass afro. <laughs> Bus and Quincy says to everybody, you know, they're all kind of grumbling because, you know, who's this brother that's late and that kind of thing. Um, or who's this, you can imagine what the words were they really use. And Quincy says to me, y'all know who this is? And they all kind of looked at him like, no, nah, we don't know who that long, wild head is. Who is he? And they said, that's Peter. And they were like, oh, my goodness. You know, and then one of the guys from the back of the Snooky Young, well-known trumpet player. Uh, Snooky just kind of says, you know, he says, I know one thing you're late. He said, "Boys, he says, I know who you are. He said, I remember when you were no more than a conversation. He said we were going with Basie's band. He said we did the gig, and B said, "Man, I'm gonna go upstairs and get on that Georgia girl and go make me a son." He said, "And here he is with so this big old head." <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> welcome to welcome to jazz. So we went to Disneyland that night to do the. the they did the gig, and he said we'll do the interview backstage. do it on the bus, basically just sat on the bus, sat backstage, just sort of catching up. How you been? Which and all that kind of stuff. And I told him, you know, what my you know high school my school journey had been at that point in my life. And he told me to he say, hey man, we got back to the to the AM lot that night. He said, come by my house tomorrow. He lived in Brentwood. I lived in Santa Monica. He said, come by the crib. He said, sometime around noon. He said, we'll sit out in my studio. We'll do the interview. I did. And we sat out in the studio for about eleven hours. Never did do the interview. Talked about everything under the sun, but the but the thing I was there to talk to him about. And so by the end of the day, you know, when we'd had too much drink and too much to eat, um, he said, Come on back tomorrow. So I did. I came back tomorrow, which is Sunday. I got there on Sunday around midday, same thing all over again, rinse, wash, and repeat. By the time we had finished, I came to realize pretty quickly that while I was there to interview him, the truth of the matter was he was interviewing me because he was one of the things he sort of let me know was he said this record was was to change the direction from him because Body Heat was the record where he decided he was no longer going to do the film composer thing, he was out of the TV scoring business, and that when he would go home at night, the music that he was listening to, because we're talking like 1973, 1974 now. So he was listening to Stevie, Earth, & Fire, Rufus & Shaka, Ohio Players, Donny Hathaway, records like that. That was the stuff that he was listening to that he was feeding off of in his soul. But when he was going in the studio making music, he was writing yet another arrangement of, you know, a Basie tune or an Ellington tune or whatever. And he just felt he wasn't being true to his artistic soul. So he's getting ready to make some changes and part of those changes were going to be that he was going to jettison his manager his production partner at the time who was the great Ray Brown the bass player that he was going to make some changes and he I realized he started picking my brain because I was a kid I was 19 20 years old and with all the bravura and bravado that goes with that I was ready to take over the world you know um and at the end at the end of the at the end of the 12 hours on Sunday he said to me hey man he said, "This record is just symbolic of where I'm going in my life. I'm going to make these moves. I'm going to really focus more on developing young talent, developing new talent. Um, would you be interested in, in coming to work for this production company? I'm gonna, my company's gonna morph into this production and record concern. And you know, me who at that point was writing for Soul magazine at you know eight cents a line and making you know a dollar fifty-eight pumping gas at the local Arco station, I thought about it for." a you know, a millisecond. Uh, yeah. be <laughs> in the office on Monday morning. And I turned up at his office at A&M on Monday morning. Uh, that was 19, uh, late summer 1973. Um, turned up at the office on Monday morning. Um, it was he he and I and a secretary at the time, a woman, a assistant, woman named Betty Giselle, Betty Gilmore. And 11 years later, I left. And it was, you know, he and I. You know, a bunch of employees and a uh, bazillion, Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones, Brothers Johnson, George Benson, Rufus and Chaka Khan, Wiz, Roots, go to the blank records later. You know, it an amazing tale.
1: I love how you talk about how he shed shedded his skin every few years. And mm-hmm. then I also love that he knew to go to one of the young folks who was in the music to mm-hmm. kind of help with launching this new foundation. Mm -hmm. How did he go about, first of all, finding artists? What was it like in terms of the talent, how he sought talent, and how he knew someone was it and that he wanted to work with them?
0: Well, uh, the most immediate answer I could give would be, there's a few. I'll say the Brothers Johnson first because the ones that I worked on, there with him. He was working on the follow-up to Body Heat, which was an album called Mellow Madness. And there was a guitar player and a bass player who were to show up that day at the studio uh, for the date. And they didn't show. And so he got frustrated because, you know, he he didn't have a guitar player and a bass player in the rhythm section for that day. And there was a background singer who was on the date, a guy called Joe Green. And Joe happened to mention to Quincy. He said, man, I know this young guitar player and bass player that you ought to hear. They'd be perfect for what you're trying to do today. He said, because Joe was a background singer with Billy Preston. And he said, Quincy said, yeah, who are they? He said, do you you know George and Louis Johnson? And Quincy said, no. He said, get them down. He said, George and Louis came down um, and turned him out, you know, um, played him a couple songs, played him, the, what became the first single from, from the Mellow Madness record is the love that we're missing and uh, and and Joan's head exploded um, and he said, oh my god, these guys are great, uh, and he said, I had been sent to Japan because um, the short of the very long was he was about to go tour Japan and it was the first time he was going to go to Japan with the smaller version of the band as opposed to orchestra, he was going to go with more of the, you know, the sort of R&B-ish, electronic, you know, version of Quincy Jones, as opposed to the big big orchestra. So he sent me to Japan to cover the date, to, to advance the date, as it were, to advance the tour to, to, for the press and the record company and everything, and let him know what he was doing, because he, he had, had achieved godlike status over there, and he wanted to sort of, you know, prime the pump and let everybody know what was happening. And i never forget, I was in Japan, I got a phone call, uh, I detailed this on my liner notes on the back of the first brother's record. I got a phone call from him. He was screaming in the phone. Edward, you won't believe it on and on Each time he called me, Edward, I knew what was up. It was, it was, it was something major. He spent and told me about these two guys that he'd found. And, um, lo and behold, I came back to, uh, to the States. And I don't know, a month later we were t- doing some warm up dates for the Japan tour. And I guess we were in Denver was the first date of the tour. And, um, Lewis Johnson and I had just, just met each other, literally, and he was my roommate for that, for that particular gig, and he was sitting in you know, two, two queen-size beds in the room. He's sitting on his bed playing his bass, doing his, you know, his thumping thing, his thumb thing, and I just kind of looked over at him. I said, Negro, that was, you got damn thumb, thunder thumbs. <laughs> he looked at me, I said, you got thunder thumbs. Quincy, I said, we're going to call him thunder thumbs. And, jo- and Johnson, said, yeah, George will be lightning licks. And hence, that's where the, their nicknames came from. Um, but you know, he he just loved the stuff. Um, other situations, um, Patty Austin he'd known Patty since she was a little girl. Her story's mm-hmm. not similar to mine. So he knew he knew her little girl, Dinah Washington, had turned him up to Diane Patty. And he um, he knew she did he, he had a, he knew he was gonna do something with Patty eventually. Um, James Ingram came to his vis a vis. Quincy was working on the dude in the early eighties. He was looking for songs for the dude album. Um, and got a call from a producer named Russ Titleman who had just heard a song that was written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde called Just Once. Russ said, I heard the song, you love the song cue. Russ is also a producer. He said, You're gonna love the song cue, and he came by to see it. He played him in the song with Love and Song but James was singing the demo. James did that he was new in town at that point. He was making, you know, twenty five bucks a session singing demos. So he sang the demo to Just Once and, and Quincy absolutely loved his voice. He said Sing the, sing the demo, and then and Russ said, "Yeah, kid called James Ingram. Apparently, he's an organ player. He's he's playing playing a gig with the Coasters. He's the organ player with the, with one of the '97 Coasters spinoff groups." So he told me, and he said, "Hey man, do he said I need you to go to some club in the valley, you know, some little club out here." He said, and, "And go see this organ player, this kid James Ingram. Tell him, you know, we need. I want him at the studio tomorrow at three or whatever." So I did, and uh, turned up and said, "Hey man, I'm at and I work for Quincy Jones." Blah blah blah. Be at Westlake Audio tomorrow. Quincy Jones wants you at the studio, you know, first session. And James came to the studio completely thinking he was there to play keyboards. And when he came in, Jones, he said, Where's the organ? Jones said, I don't want your organ. I want you to sing. (laughs) James said, What? He said, Sing just then. He played the tractor just once. He had him sing it again. James nailed it in two takes. So that was the way that we came across an artist, you know. Then I'm sure Saida told the story of um, how he had done a sort of cattle call of this group that we were putting together at the time a thing that he was doing called Deco Saida was to be one of the members Saida ultimately positioned herself as such you know, rose to the top uh, to be one of the members of the group along with Philip Ingram, James's younger brother who had been in the band Switch Uh, a guy called uh, Kevin Dorsey who sang with Michael Jackson for a while another guy called Gerald Fennessy who's a well-known session singer here in town but yeah, you know, just there are a plethora of ways that we've come across stuff, you know, and, uh, and then ultimately once his focus became solely developing a lot of new talent, the process became, you know, people started coming to us.
1: I love this. And, and, you know, for you, your career has placed you at the seat of many celebrated music icons from your father to Quincy Jones. Did knowing of their experiences and expectations help you face any career challenges?
0: Hmm. Um, being raised by an artist in an artist environment, um, certainly tainted, because as I said, you know, dinner conversation and in, in our family household was showbiz and obviously it was coming from dad. So we're hearing it from an artist perspective, you know, and an artist perspective with all due respect and love to my pops is sometimes a tad skewed. I'll say for.
1: you're being nice.
0: and one of the things that with Quincy that was always interesting to me was I used to say when I first started working with, and like I said, I was just a pup at that point that uh, I didn't know much, but one thing that I, that I inherently sensed it was that he was a highly evolved artist as businessman. One of the things I used to always say is that if Jones was in a room and there were two doors in the room, one door was marked business and one door was marked artist. Um, Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, he'd go in and out of the artist store because that's who he was at his core. But the reality of it was, he was always finely tuned to business, to what the business of a particular situation was that he was uh, that he was that he was involved in, you know. Um, and because he used to have a line, he said, you know, our constant battle is a battle between um, artistic credibility and commercial viability, uh, and if you cross either one of those lines, to Whatever, flagrantly, wantonly, if you, if you do stuff that's too obviously trying to be commercial, it's going to tell on you. And if you do stuff that's too arty, you're not going to sell any records. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly informed my, uh, my overall thinking. There was a point when I was in my corporate gig at Mercury. Uh, one of my corporate bosses used to like to sort of pick at me by calling me Ed Eckstein, the bleeding heart for the side of art. Um, <laughs> that were being made from a corporate perspective that I felt were sort of anti-artist or you know, detrimental to the artistic cause, I would always sort of raise my hand, eh, not a good idea, you know, stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. You had the perfect marriage between your dad on the talent side, Quincy on the business side and talent side. Mm-hmm. And then looking at your career, you have had a Polygrams Wing Records with Miss America Vanessa Williams. So I'm just curious, you know, during that time with, Vanessa Williams and what she was going through. How did that play a role in how you positioned her and positioned artists uh, during that time?
0: Well, um, there was there was after I left Quincy, I went to work for Arista Records. I went to work for Clive Davis. Clive hired me as vice president of a and wow. um, and that was like Quincy, The Quincy experience was like going to a very very well healed, um, high level private college or university um clive was like going to an ivy league school um I, and i had never really sort of experienced the corporate machinations per se because there used to be an old ef hutton commercial you know when ef hutton speaks everybody listens because you know when i was a kid said coming up word for quincy i was representing you know the biggest one in the game at that point so you know quincy 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 said quincy this quincy that they would listen to me I mistakenly thought that at a certain point, the are thing to me, I must be bad. No, they're listening to you because you represent Quincy. <laughs> but once you get, getting in the Clive environment, I really sort of learned how the New York corporate record business worked. And I learned a great deal from Clive. Not to say that it didn't come with its fr- inherent frustrations, but I learned a great deal. From so ultimately when the powers that be at Polygram came after me to, to come to work there, um, which became ultimately with some wing mercury situation. Uh, the latter period of my time with Arista, um, I knew I knew I was leaving at that point. I had the deal had not been worked out, but I knew I was going somewhere. Ramon Hervey, who was Vanessa's husband and slash manager, uh, Ramon had been an old friend of mine, and I knew that at that point he had been out shopping. I call Vanessa V. had been out shopping V to get her a deal somewhere, um, and everybody in town had taken meetings with him and her ultimately um but it was a bit more of a sort of an ogling situation oh that's how we're in here now we always see mr Mary, that kind of stuff <laughs> nobody was really taking the music seriously but i had heard her on george clinton's record uh, where she did the version of that song with boosie do fries go with that shake and hey good looking um and i said this is cool i can do we can do something here so ramon came by of the office one day just to hang and we were talking i say hey, man how's it going? He told me what's going on. I said, well, look, you, you know, on the low, I'm going to be leaving here shortly. I'm moving back home to LA. I was in New York. this point. moving back home to LA and I'm be starting a label for Polygram. I said, I'd be very interested in sit down and talking, and figuring out what it is you want to do. My thought process, to be honest with you, was I could start a label with Susie Jones, you know, someone that, that's a name that nobody knows um, who could potentially be an artist that we could blow up and do whatever with or I could start a label with Vanessa Williams, a name that everybody knew at that particular point, but nobody knew what, what talent was may, may, or may, may or may not inherently be there, but that was my job to to accomplish and to make it work. I was not a Miss America person per se, but I do recall vividly being at my mother's, being at my mom's house the night that she won Miss America, and I was out in the yard doing something with you know, the dogs or something, and I heard my mom scream from, oh my God, she won, the black girl won, the black girl won. My, my mom went, Fuck wild. <laughs> and I walked in the house as she was singing, you know, doing the Streisand thing of, um, happy days are here again. So when I, uh, when I got back to LA, Ramon arranged a dinner and the three of us went to dinner and, and Vanessa at that point had sort of heard it all from everybody. And she looked at me as just another knucklehead, you know, who was, you know, there to, you know, act, offer promises, but, you know, but nothing, a lot of sizzle and no steak. Um, so, you know, we ended up talking. She came out of the office the next day, and I started picking her brain about where she lived musically. And she's a, she's a woman from New York, and she grew up on WBLS. She grew up on Frankie Crockett. Um, and so she loved Frankie. She loved BLS. She loved New York Radio. Jerry Bledsoe and those guys. So um, the Dixie Drifter, Hanks Band. Um, so she, she had really broad taste in music, and she had a bunch of cassettes in her car, the days when people used to make, you know, custom cassettes for your car. And we were going somewhere, and I just took her cassettes out of her car. She said, "What are you doing?" And said, "I'm taking your tapes. What are you going to do with those? I'm taking them up my office and listen to them because it'll give you a sense of where you are musically and what your breadth of taste, you know." And her breadth of taste sort of went everywhere at that point, from funk to you know, Roberta Flack to Streisand to Tanya Maria Brazilian stuff. Just it was a, she had a wide range, wide ranging taste, which was interesting to me. So um, from that, I sort of formulated a sense of who it is where I thought she lived musically, and we started to go down a road of to make a record. Um and then probably, I'll just say for the sake of conversation, four weeks into this process, she turns up in the office one day and she was always sort of warm and nice to me and we'd have a good time. She quickly sort of became baby sister. Um and she kind, of, you know, and she was I want to say wasn't looking me in the eye, but was sort of looking all over the place when we were talking to me. I said, what's up, V? What's going on? No, something's up, what's going on? She goes, you're going to be pissed. I said, why, what's up? She says, I'm pregnant. And I said, ah, congratulations. So she was pregnant with their first, she had her most first child, Melanie. I said, congratulations. I said, this is great. She says, really? I said, yeah. She said, I'm going to be able to make a record. I said, "We'll give us the time to incubate and take a little more time to figure out what we're going to do, et cetera, et cetera. And I think from that moment, that's really where our bond was sort of cemented, you know, mm-hmm. because it wasn't all about get the hell out of here. You got know, your pregnant ass, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, and that, that's really, that's what the relationship was born from.
1: I love that because again, from your roots, starting with your dad, understanding the artist and then working with Quincy as he shed his skin to start this branching out a new career, mm-hmm. you clearly had a talent and a gift of recognizing that. And, My other question is, when you're working with new artists, what was your signing process and was it influenced by Quincy? Did you kind of do the same thing you did with Vanessa or did each artist have a customized type of process?
0: Well, the one thing that um, to answer the Quincy portion of it was Quincy's was always, it's all about the song. The bottom line, his thing was... it's 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 all it's got to be about the song um everything else is just sort of icing on the cake you know imagery and all that stuff it's all about you know where they're gonna once you play the record where they're gonna walk away humming and singing you know Mm -hmm. so first and foremost it was always regardless of who the act was be it vanessa where we found who didn't write where we found songs for her you know in the old-fashioned a and r sense you know matchmaking with artists artists and repertoire a and r um or a band like, say, Tony, 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 who I also signed and worked with, who wrote their own material, you know, and, and had a very specific thing that they did um, to get to the core of what their material was, maintaining whatever the imagery was and the vibe was, but that also that there was a song there, you know, because reality is you know, that certainly a vibe, and you hear Feels Good, there's a song there. You hear Anniversary, Lay Your Head On My Pillow, the things that they, you know, clearly songs, you know. Um, that were sort of timeless, you know, everything else around the Tony, Tony, Toniness of it was really sort of the icing on the cake, but it rooted, there was song. So yeah, I mean, the the, the ultimate criteria is always like what was the song? You know, what, what are we going to sell to people? What are we going to get them to respond to?
1: And you've worked with, I mean, Tony, 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 Vanessa Williams, Brian Knight. Mm -hmm. Were there any artists that surprised you when you started working with them and getting a feel for, who they were and their style was anyone of a, a, a surprise
0: surprise. Hmm. Um, well, yes and no. Um, I'd say Brian was to this extent. Um, McKnight was to this extent where I came to, to be aware of Brian was I had an R guy named Sam Sapp and Sam used to put cassettes on the passenger seat of my car for me to listen to when I was going home at night because, you know, I'd be sitting in evening traffic. And so this one particular evening, I'd just come home from vacation. I got in the car, plopped the tape in. and He said it was an 18-year-old kid from Buffalo, New York, via Orlando, Florida, who was a student at Oakwood College at that point, named Brian McKnight. His older brother was Claude McKnight of Take Six. And I was a big Take Six fan uh, at the time. Take Six had probably just put one record out at that particular moment. So I put the tape on, and it was... Uh, was Brian doing everything more or less, playing all the instruments? And the first track on it was a song that ended up being one of the first tracks on his on his album called "The Way Love Goes," um, uh, and and a lot of the stuff that ended up on the first record ended up on uh, on Brian's on the very first album. Not "One Last Cry," which was it was the first hit, but um, so I listened and, and loved it, and found out from from Sam after talking to him that um, he had done a lot of work to, at the studio down in Huntsville, Alabama with a producer down there called Doug Smith. And um, they were this close to a deal with Sony at that particular point. But the powers that be at Sony wanted him to be produced by Babyface or whoever, you know, producer of the moment was. And I love Face's work. But, you know, Brian is is an artist, and auteur in his own mind, rightfully so. He did not want to sort of end up in that sort of production gristmill. He wanted to do stuff himself. So I knew there's, if I'm going to win this card game, that's the card I got to play. So as I said to him, I said, look, man, I want to see you to sort of execute whatever your vision is here. And it'll be on, on us to sort of make it happen from there. But I'm going to ask you to make this promise to me that once we're two, two albums in, if it hasn't worked that way, allow me the opportunity to bring in somebody to work with you, you know, moving forward. He said, cool. And we did. And, uh, and that was the first record, and the first record came. And we had a hard time getting him arrested, as they say, You know, after the first record. It took us almost two a year and a half to two years to get that record started because it was at a time where romantic balladeers were not necessarily uh, in fashion, in vogue at the time. Um, everything was sort of hip-hop-based. Brian was certainly a throwback. He was really, in his own way, he was kind of contemporary of my father's era, you know? my father slash Stevie slash Donnie. Um, and we, uh, like I said, promoters weren't booking him, you know, for tours. We just really had a hard, had a hard time getting it on the radio. Uh, and particularly too when we decided to go with One Last Cry, because, you know, it was a really sort of, you know, stark ballad. And, and Brian had sort of gone through a few permutations of recording it. And the thing that I kept hearing in my head was, I heard that song pretty much as it was, just keyboards, vocal, and the guitar solo in the middle, no drums, and you know, and a record you got to get started at black radio with no drums. What are you kidding? <laughs> uh, good luck with that, brother. Um, but you know, I, I, in in my heart of hearts, I knew that that record had sort of an ambient, ethereal feel to it, in order to let the song breathe, let the sentiment breathe, and let him let him do his thing. Of a different order, it was kind of "She's Out of My Life." That was really what was sort of the driving force that I was hearing in the back of my head, you know, that, that sense of emotion that Michael emitted in she's out of my life was, was not dissimilar to what one last cry was about. Um, so we ultimately that's where the record company really kicked in or being in charge, being an A&R guy. Um, there was a classic Eddie Murphy line from, I guess, 48 hours, maybe Beverly Hills cop when, uh, when somebody says to him, when he's with Nick Nolte, he says, what are you? He says, I'm your worst fucking nightmare. In my case, I was your worst nightmare. I was an A&R guy who was the president of a record company. Um, so, you know, stuff that normally would get shot down because he was my artist and I, and I had a certain vision for him, I could make it happen because I was, you know, I was, I was the leader of the troops, as it were. One of the things that we did was my artist development department, there was a, a guy there that then named Bobby Duckett, And Bobby had worked for Hush Productions for years. Freddie Jackson and Lilo Thomas and and a number of the artists who were at Hush. Jackie Reinhardt knew Duckett real well. I think Jackie was on this call at some point. And Bobby, one of the things that Bobby came to me and said, look, man, the major promoters aren't biting on Brian. We can't get him out there. We need to just get him on the road. One of the things that we found as a record company was when we were setting up his record, what we did was we'd, we'd go into different markets, bring in all the retail people, bring in a lot of radio people, take over a penthouse suite, in a hotel, the grand piano, and just let Brian sit at the piano do a cocktail party, kind of thing. sit down at the piano and just start playing his songs, and we, we noticed it reverberated immediately, resonated immediately, both male and female. Um, women rea- reacted to him, and men reacted because women reacted. Oh, that brother saw it. <laughs> they saw how the girl reacted. Oh, I like this. <laughs> so it was on like that. So one of the things that we realized was that we just got to get him in front of people, and one of the ways we decided was Bobby's idea, actually, was he said you know man he said the, the promoters won't bite he said but you know how after after every major show in town there's always the after party at the Mar- marriott Marquis or whatever that that so-and-so the local street promoter in town puts on he said let's do stuff with the street promoters let's let's hire let's create them as our promoter network you know the real so, so-called big boys won't mess with our boy but let's let, let's throw a bone to the b team here maybe it'll elevate them and so we did and he said brian started doing a lot of those kind of gigs um I, I always remember that there was a point where he called me from the road he's very he was a very soft he still is was a very soft-spoken kid at that point he was like 19 years old he called me i said where are you man i'm in montgomery alabama oh how's it going he said it's cool he said how's where's the gate tonight he said i'm playing a barbecue joint and, you know just kind of you know quiet and silent on the other <laughs> end you know, why the hell y'all got me in a barbecue joint and i knew montgomery because my uh my daughter's mother was from montgomery i'd been down there a bunch and I knew the barbecue joint. And, uh, and he said, I'm playing a barbecue joint. And he, was, he was doing a promotion for whatever the station is in the market. I've forgotten now. And, uh, and later on that night, he called me. I said, how was the show, man? He said, dude. He said, we sold out. Blah, 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 blah. I said, Gee, barbecue, where plays the Yammy. He says, weird scene. One last night. And somebody walking by with a tray of, tray of ribs. <laughs> Which market that he went to, that was sort of the end story. You know, there'd be something that happened in one of those markets, you know, after it was all said and done. Um, that reacted is like the old fat. His artists developed the old, fa- good, old-fashioned way, and we were fortunate too, just to backtrack a little bit. Vanessa, this similar tale because um, Brian, like I said, just very humble. The music kind of sold him, and in Vanessa's case, obviously the infamy created an awareness with certain people. But her ability to sell, because part of my attitude was that if she could sell her Miss as to. The, the, the junior leagues throughout America to, you know, to white America, you know, convincing black radio to put a record on, if we made the right record was not going to be that big a problem. Um, and then, and, and we, we did a promotion tour with her, Michael Johnson, who was our head of promotion at the time. She and Michael went on the road with our local staff and she would go into all the markets and, you know, do the afternoon drive shows or whatever, you know, and the brothers who were on the radio more often than not, in the afternoon show, um, were happy to have her there and you know and, and she she just had a way of, of sort of commanding a commanding presence of taking over the room which it's stationed in. if somebody's asking the same sort of generic questions she would kind of say, yeah i don't want to hit these same stupid questions i bet you want to know about so and so so and so you know and the phones would start lighting up and when the right stuff went on and dreaming phones lit up and you know it was on so artist development that was you know as much as making the right record it was really all about getting out there and and positioning it and shaping it for the marketplace.
1: Wow, this is, I could talk to you all day. I'm just, I'm fascinated. I'm just fascinated. So my last question for you, although I wish I had we had about five more uh, episodes with you, but um, word on the street is that you're working on a project about your dad, Billy Eckstein. Um, So tell us more and when we'll be able to see it.
0: Well, it's been in motion for a while. Um, It's a documentary about my dad his life, his music, uh, and his his social activism, just, you know, and who he was as a pops. I've been, we've been in production with it for a few years now. The director called Kevin Swain, um, although we we're having some conversations with some money people, you know, about broadening it a bit. And it's, you know, it's, it's early stages, although we've been working on it for a minute, but it's one of these situations that when we get a certain influx of cash, things will start to move along pretty quickly. And we've already shot, some pretty good, significant interviews we shot Quincy, because Quincy and my dad were very close from from the time Quincy was a kid, when he was thirteen, fourteen years old. Wow. He's turned turn up at my dad's gigs up in Seattle with the big band, with his with an armload of arrangements under his arm, you know, waiting to try to get to the to to Bobby or various musicians in the band so he could show them the arrangements that he'd written. And the story they always told is they always wondered when did Quincy go to school because he was always he'd be there when the band got to the gig at four o'clock in the afternoon. And he would stay there until two thirty in the morning after the year was over. So Quincy George Benson, his, my dad's from Pittsburgh, and Benson's Pittsburgher, and you know, Dad was functionally the first sort of star to emerge from Pittsburgh music, uh, Pittsburgh music community. And, and George, George, and my dad had a you know, has special friendship. President Jimmy Carter, uh, President Carter was a was a friend, was a big fan of dads from. He tells us the story that when he and Miss Rosalind's uh, first dates was to see Billy Eckstein, and I guess it was in Macon. And uh, we he used to call the house periodically when we were kids. You know, really? You asked exstein Eckstein resident, Let's speak to Mr. B, please. And said, so, Who's called Jimmy Carter? And then when he ran, you know, when, you know dad, Jimmy Carter's on the phone, you know, whoever Jimmy Carter was. And when he ran for president, my, I remember my younger brother guy, and I looked at him, Wait, a, that dude? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so president carter willie mays willie mays inter- did an interview for us which was cool um and a few others you know that you know and obviously a lot of the people of his generation have passed so right. and we're, we're dealing with a lot of sort of uh archive footage sort of make it happen but yeah that's just going on there
1: that's going to be so good and um ed this is honestly this has been amazing and i'm so appreciative that you joined us and I have enjoyed every single moment of this. Now tell us where we can find you on social media, websites, where people can find you.
0: Um, hmm. I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm kind of low key on the uh, you know, Luddite, Luddite issues in the early part of the day, notwithstanding. Um, you can generally find me. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. Okay. Uh, okay. You know. And what's your handle on Instagram and TikTok instagram i'm two easy e's two easy E apostrophe s
1: okay okay that's perfect well i'd like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today and be sure to subscribe like comment we'll be sure to respond and most importantly thank you for joining us ed
0: Thank you. It was my pleasure. Music Day, a verified hit. Associate producers Jackie Reinhart, Barnell Johnson, Vivian Scott Chu, Mark Hill, Tony Winger, Sheila Eldridge, Pat Shields, Ken Johnson, and Shannon Henderson. This has been a Living Legends Foundation, Inc. production. Find out more about the Living Legends Foundation, Inc. or donate at livinglegendsfoundation.com.